Chapter Three of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Three: A Knot of Dreamers. Zenobia bade us welcome in a fine, frank, mellow voice, and gave each of us her hand, which was very soft and warm. She had something appropriate, I recollect, to say to every individual. And what she said to myself was this: I have long wished to know you, Mr. Coverdale, and to thank you for your beautiful poetry, some of which I have learned by heart, or rather, it has stolen into my memory without my exercising any choice or volition about the matter. Of course, permit me to say you do not think of relinquishing an occupation in which you have done yourself so much credit. I would almost rather give you up as an associate. Than that the world should lose one of its true poets. Ah, no! There will not be the slightest danger of that, especially after this inestimable praise from Zenobia," said I, smiling and blushing, no doubt, with excess of pleasure. I hope, on the contrary, now to produce something that shall really deserve to be called poetry—true, strong, natural, and sweet, as is the life which we are going to lead. Something that shall have the notes of wild birds twittering through it, or a strain like the wind anthems in the woods, as the case may be. Is it irksome to you to hear your own verses sung? Asked Zenobia with a gracious smile. If so, I am very sorry, for you will certainly hear me singing them sometimes in the summer evenings. Of all things, answered I, that is what will delight me most. While this passed, and while she spoke to my companions, I was taking note of Zenobia's aspect, and it impressed itself on me so distinctly that I can now summon her up like a ghost, a little wanner than the life, but otherwise identical with it. She was dressed as simply as possible in an American print—I think the dry goods people call it so—but with a silken kerchief between which and her gown there was one glimpse of a white shoulder. It struck me as a great piece of good fortune that there should be just that glimpse. Her hair, which was dark, glossy, and of singular abundance, was put up rather soberly and primly, without curls or other ornament, except a single flower. It was an exotic of rare beauty, and as fresh as if the hothouse gardener had just clipped it from the stem. That flower has struck deep root into my memory. I can both see it and smell it at this moment, so brilliant, so rare, so costly as it must have been, and yet enduring only for a day. It was more indicative of the pride and pomp which had a luxuriant growth in Zenobia's character than if a great diamond had sparkled among her hair. Her hand, though very soft, was larger than most women would like to have, or than they could afford to have. Though not a whit too large in proportion with the spacious plan of Zenobia's entire development, it did one good to see a fine intellect as hers really was, although its natural tendency lay in another direction than towards literature, so fitly cased. She was indeed an admirable figure of a woman, just on the hither verge of her richest maturity, with a combination of features which it is safe to call remarkably beautiful. Even if some fastidious persons might pronounce them a little deficient in softness and delicacy, 
but we find enough of those attributes everywhere. Preferable, by way of variety at least, was Zenobia's bloom, health, and vigor, which she possessed in such overflow that a man might well have fallen in love with her for their sake only. In her quiet moods she seemed rather indolent, but when really in earnest, particularly if there were a spice of bitter feeling, she grew all alive to her finger-tips. "'I am the first comer,' Zenobia went on to say, while her smile beamed warmth upon us all, "'so I take the part of hostess for to-day, and welcome you as if to my own fireside. "'You shall be my guests, too, at supper. "'Tomorrow, if you please, we will be brethren and sisters, and begin our new life from daybreak.' "'Have we our various parts assigned?' asked someone. "'Oh, we of the softer sex,' responded Zenobia, with her mellow, almost broad laugh, most delectable to hear, but not in the least like an ordinary woman's laugh. "'We women—there are four of us here already—will take the domestic and indoor part of the business as a matter of course. To bake, to boil, to roast, to fry, to stew— to wash and iron and scrub and sweep, and at our idler intervals to repose ourselves on knitting and sewing. These, I suppose, must be feminine occupations for the present. By and by, perhaps, when our individual adaptations begin to develop themselves, it may be that some of us who wear the petticoat will go afield and leave the weaker brethren to take our places in the kitchen." "'What a pity,' I remarked, "'that the kitchen and the housework generally cannot be left out of our system altogether. It is odd enough that the kind of labor which falls to the lot of women is just that which chiefly distinguishes artificial life, the life of degenerated mortals, from the life of paradise. Eve had no dinner-pot and no clothes to mend and no washing-day.' "'I am afraid,' said Zenobia, with mirth gleaming out of her eyes, "'we shall find some difficulty in adopting the paradisiacal system for at least a month to come. Look at that snowdrift sweeping past the window. Are there any figs ripe, do you think? Have the pineapples been gathered to-day? Would you like a breadfruit or a coconut? Shall I run out and pluck you some roses?' "'No, no, Mr. Coverdale. The only flower hereabouts is the one in my hair, which I got out of a greenhouse this morning. As for the garb of Eden,' added she, shivering playfully, "'I shall not assume it till after May Day.' Assuredly Zenobia could not have intended it. The fault must have been entirely in my imagination. But these last words, together with something in her manner, irresistibly brought up a picture of that fine, perfectly developed figure in Eve's earliest garment. Her free, careless, generous modes of expression often had this effect of creating images which, though pure, are hardly felt to be quite decorous when born of a thought that passes between man and woman. I imputed it at that time to Zenobia's noble courage, conscious of no harm, and scorning the petty restraints which take the life and color out of other women's conversation. There was another peculiarity about her. We seldom meet with women nowadays, and in this country, who impress us as being women at all. Their sex fades away and goes for nothing in ordinary intercourse. Not so with Zenobia. 
One felt an influence breathing out of her such as we might suppose to come from Eve when she was just made, and her Creator brought her to Adam, saying, Behold, here is a woman. Not that I would convey the idea of especial gentleness, grace, modesty, and shyness, but of a certain warm and rich characteristic, which seems for the most part to have been refined away out of the feminine system. And now, continued Zenobia, I must go and help get supper. Do you think you can be content, instead of figs, pineapples, and all the other delicacies of Adam's supper-table, with tea and toast and a certain modest supply of ham and tongue, which, with the instinct of a housewife, I brought hither in a basket? And there shall be bread and milk, too, if the innocence of your taste demands it. The whole sisterhood now went about their domestic avocations, utterly declining our offers to assist, further than by bringing wood for the kitchen fire from a huge pile in the back yard. After heaping up more than a sufficient quantity, we returned to the sitting-room, drew our chairs close to the hearth, and began to talk over our prospects. Soon, with a tremendous stamping in the entry, appeared Silas Foster, lank, stalwart, uncouth, and grisly-bearded. He came from foddering the cattle in the barn, and from the field where he had been ploughing, until the depth of the snow rendered it impossible to draw a furrow. He greeted us in pretty much the same tone as if he were speaking to his oxen, took a quid from his iron tobacco-box, pulled off his wet cowhide boots, and sat down before the fire in his stocking feet. The steam arose from his soaked garments, so that the stout yeoman looked vaporous and spectre-like. "'Well, folks,' remarked Silas, "'you'll be wishing yourselves back to town again if this weather holds.' And, true enough, there was a look of gloom as the twilight fell silently and sadly out of the sky, its grey or sable flakes intermingling themselves with the fast-descending snow." The storm, in its evening aspect, was decidedly dreary. It seemed to have arisen for our especial behoof, a symbol of the cold, desolate, distrustful phantoms that invariably haunt the mind on the eve of adventurous enterprises, to warn us back within the boundaries of ordinary life. But our courage did not quail. We would not allow ourselves to be depressed by the snowdrift trailing past the window, any more than if it had been the sigh of a summer wind among rustling boughs. There have been few brighter seasons for us than that. If ever men might lawfully dream awake, and give utterance to their wildest visions without dread of laughter or scorn on the part of the audience, yes, and speak of earthly happiness for themselves and mankind as an object to be hopefully striven for and probably obtained. We who made that little semicircle round the blazing fire were those very men. We had left the rusty iron framework of society behind us, we had broken through many hindrances that are powerful enough to keep most people on the weary treadmill of the established system, even while they feel its irksomeness almost as intolerable as we did. We had stepped down from the pulpit, we had flung aside the pen, we had shut up the ledger, we had thrown off that sweet, bewitching, enervating indolence, which is better, after all, than most of the enjoyments within mortal grasp. 
It was our purpose, a generous one certainly, and absurd, no doubt, in full proportion with its generosity, to give up whatever we had heretofore attained for the sake of showing mankind the example of a life governed by other than the false and cruel principles on which human society has all along been based. And first of all we had divorced ourselves from pride, and were striving to supply its place with familiar love. We meant to lessen the laboring man's great burden of toil by performing our due share of it at the cost of our own thews and sinews. We sought our profit by mutual aid, instead of wresting it by the strong hand of an enemy, or filching it craftily from those less shrewd than ourselves, if indeed there were any such in New England, or winning it by selfish competition with a neighbor, in one or another of which fashions every son of woman both perpetrates and suffers his share of the common evil, whether he chooses it or no. And as the basis of our institution we purposed to offer up the earnest toil of our bodies as a prayer no less than an effort for the advancement of our race. Therefore if we built splendid castles, phalansteries, perhaps they might be more fitly called, and pictured beautiful scenes among the fervid coals of the hearth around which we were clustering, and if all went to rack with the crumbling embers, and have never since arisen out of the ashes, let us take to ourselves no shame. In my own behalf I rejoice that I could once think better of the world's improvability than it deserved." It is a mistake into which men seldom fall twice in a lifetime, or, if so, the rarer and higher is the nature that can thus magnanimously persist in error. Stout Silas Foster mingled little in our conversation, but when he did speak it was very much to some practical purpose. For instance, "'Which man among you,' quoth he, "'is the best judge of swine?' Some of us must go to the next Brighton fair and buy half a dozen pigs. Pigs? Good heavens! Had we come out from among the swinish multitude for this? And again, in reference to some discussion about raising early vegetables for the market, we shall never make any hand at market gardening, said Silas Foster, unless the women folks will undertake to do all the weeding. We haven't team enough for that and the regular farm work, reckoning three of your city folks as worth one common field hand. No, no, I tell you, we should have to get up a little too early in the morning to compete with the market gardeners round Boston. It struck me as rather odd that one of the first questions raised after our separation from the greedy, struggling, self-seeking world should relate to the possibility of getting the advantage over the outside barbarians in their own field of labor. But to own the truth I very soon became sensible that, as regarded society at large, we stood in a position of new hostility, rather than new brotherhood. Nor could this fail to be the case in some degree until the bigger and better half of society should range itself on our side. Constituting so pitiful a minority as now, we were inevitably estranged from the rest of mankind, in pretty fair proportion with the strictness of our mutual bond among ourselves. This dawning idea, however, was driven back into my inner consciousness by the entrance of Zenobia. She came with the welcome intelligence that supper was on the table. 
looking at herself in the glass and perceiving that her one magnificent flower had grown rather languid, probably by being exposed to the fervency of the kitchen fire, she flung it on the floor as unconcernedly as a village girl would throw away a faded violet. The action seemed proper to her character, although, methought, it would still more have befitted the bounteous nature of this beautiful woman to scatter fresh flowers from her hand, and to revive faded ones by her touch. Nevertheless, it was a singular but irresistible effect. The presence of Zenobia caused our heroic enterprise to show like an illusion, a masquerade, a pastoral, a counterfeit Arcadia, in which we grown-up men and women were making a play-day of the years that were given us to live in. I tried to analyze this impression, but not with much success. "'It really vexes me,' observed Zenobia, as we left the room, "'that Mr. Hollingsworth should be such a laggard. "'I should not have thought him at all the sort of person "'to be turned back by a puff of contrary wind "'or a few snowflakes drifting into his face.' "'Do you know Hollingsworth personally?' I inquired. "'No, only as an auditor, auditress, I mean, of some of his lectures,' said she. "'What a voice he has, and what a man he is! "'Yet not so much an intellectual man, I should say, as a great heart. "'At least he moved me more deeply than I think myself capable of being moved, "'except by the stroke of a true, strong heart against my own.' It is a sad pity that he should have devoted his glorious powers to such a grimy, unbeautiful, and positively hopeless object as this reformation of criminals, about which he makes himself and his wretchedly small audiences so very miserable. To tell you a secret, I never could tolerate a philanthropist before. Could you? By no means, I answered. Neither can I now. "'They are indeed an odiously disagreeable set of mortals,' continued Zenobia. "'I should like Mr. Hollingsworth a great deal better if the philanthropy had been left out. At all events, as a mere matter of taste, I wish he had let the bad people alone and try to benefit those who are not already past his help. Do you suppose he will be content to spend his life, or even a few months of it, among tolerably virtuous and comfortable individuals like ourselves? Upon my word I doubt it, said I. If we wish to keep him with us, we must systematically commit at least one crime apiece. Mere peccadilloes will not satisfy him. Zenobia turned sidelong a strange kind of a glance upon me, but before I could make out what it meant we had entered the kitchen, where, in accordance with the rustic simplicity of our new life, the supper-table was spread. End of chapter 3